This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The following program uses what are sometimes called four-letter words, though in this case they're actually eight letters and perhaps a seven-letter gerund. It's Thursday, March 17th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know about the political walk back? Oh, I'd like to clarify my somewhat emotional outburst. Well, Joe Biden did the walk forward. He said a temperate thing, then clarified, yeah, I don't really believe that, on a fairly significant matter. So since the start of the war in Ukraine, Biden has been scathingly critical of Vladimir Putin, but loathed to use a particular phrase. Here he was a couple of days ago, asked if Putin was committing war crimes. Russia is committing war crimes. We are following it very closely. It's early to say that. Now, America's U.N. representative, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, soon thereafter did talk about war crimes. They constitute war crimes. They are attacks on civilians that cannot be justified by any, um, in, in any way whatsoever. But still, the president hadn't gone there until last night when a reporter asked if he was ready to call Putin a war criminal. No. But then, with no need to walk it back, he was doing just fine. He walked it forward. He went back to that reporter and said, I'd like to change my answer. Oh, I, I, I think he is a war criminal. Which led to questions for Jen Psaki. Really? He meant it? Saki explained that when it comes to highly technical terms with serious international import, the president was all up in his feelings. The president's remarks speak for themselves. Uh, he was speaking from his heart and speaking from what he's seen on television, which is barbaric actions by a brutal dictator uh, through his invasion of a foreign country. Putin reacted predictably, did not like it. Therefore, I'm tempted to say, well, then you shouldn't have committed war crimes, you monster. But since one side labeling the other a war criminal is actually immaterial in terms of the realistic possibility of ending his war criminality, it is odd that this would be the way for the term to be introduced into the discussion at the highest levels. War crimes, crimes against humanity, when leveled against the head of a nuclear state, they have no impact. They don't restrain behavior. They don't constrain actions once undertaken. I think we're seeing that. Putin will never be in the dock in The Hague. The world is already united against him. This escalation of rhetoric, I don't think does much. So I don't know what this gets us other than an expression of emotion. I prefer an emphasis on strategic calculation given the stakes. 
On the show today, I spiel about the cost of March Madness, not in productivity, but in degrading facts and believability with wild claims about productivity. But first, I apologize for not giving you a full rundown with time codes of everything I and the guests say during each episode. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be an innovation of podcasting? You gotta hand it to books. They got the index. And an index is a wondrous thing. And the story of the index as an institution, it's actually an unexpected delight. At least, it is as written by Dennis Duncan, author of Index, comma, A History of the up next. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The history of the index flows through two men with names that could have been invented by P.G. Wodehouse. St. Hugh of Cher, which sounds like RuPaul's Drag Race was doing a Chaucer parody, and Robert Grosseteste, whose surname I thought was Grosseteste, meaning big head in Italian, but is actually anglicized from the French, Grosseteste. I'm probably pronouncing that a little wrong as the French word, Grosseteste, which actually, of course, does mean big head, and it might not have actually been his actual name. Actually, if it's all confusing, it reads much cleaner on the page because it can be categorized and inventoried via an index. Dennis Duncan is author of Index, a history of the... A bookish adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age. Dennis, thanks for coming on The Gist. Mike, thanks so much for having me. You want to talk about St. Hugh or Robert and tell us why they were important? Yeah, so we're talking about the year 1230. We're talking about the start of the 13th century. The index hasn't been invented, and then suddenly it is. And we're talking about Robert and Hugh. Notice we're talking about two people. The index is one of those inventions... uh, Another one would be the light bulb. Another one would be mathematical calculus that get invented twice at the same time in different places. The moment is so ripe. The need for something to, to, to fulfill a certain role uh, is so sort of ripe that two people come up with it. Right. The telephone, uh, movies about meteors hitting the earth. But I I interject. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so in Paris, at the Dominican friary of Saint-Jacques, which is uh, just, just where the, the Pantheon is now just outside the Pantheon. Um, uh, Hugh, Hugh of Sancher, uh, C H E R, I'll come to that later, uh, gets his friars to uh, cut up the Bible, to take the whole of the Latin Bible and simply rearrange the words into alphabetical order. So you have about 10,000 key words, nouns, verbs, adjectives. He doesn't bother with the little words, but nouns, verbs, and adjectives, adverbs. Um, and about 129,000 locators. These are all the points that these words appear. Put them in alphabetical order. What that means is if you are a friar who needs to write sermons, suddenly you can go, I'm going to do a sermon about stones. 
I'm, I'm going to look up uh, Petrus Stone and the uh, links will tell me all of the, oh, I'm going to take that one from the New Testament and I'm going to jump back to the Old Testament and my sermons are going to be lively. They're going to have the energy of movement. Gosh, he really has the Bible at his fingertips today. So that ability to, to uh, find what you're looking for, uh, uh, to, to, to think in terms of specific words rather than think of the Bible as a linear book. Now, what Hugh and his, his friars do is a word index. They literally take every word. But if the Bible uses a slightly different word for it or a synonym, the word index doesn't work. So let's jump across the channel. We're still in 1230. Now we're in Oxford and we're thinking about Robert Grosstest. Grosstest is the perfect nickname for him because he has this totally encyclopedic, capacious intellect. He's read everything. And in order to organise this knowledge that he has. When I say he's read everything, he's read the Bible, he's read the church fathers, he's read philosophy, classical philosophy, Aristotle. Um, so he's, he's totally uh, um, capacious in, or rapacious in his, his interests. How does he organise that? Well, he thinks, what are the concepts that I'm interested in? He draws up a table of about 440 concepts. And every time one of those concepts appears in anything that he's reading, he does a little symbol, like an emoticon, a, a, a tiny little symbol. The symbol for imagination, for example, is a flower, something that's easy to remember. He writes that in the margin. Here's that concept. And so when you look at his old medieval manuscripts, some of them survive, you look down the margins and you see this kind of stream of emoticons. There's imagination, there's the idea of the Trinity, all of these little symbols. And what he can then do is run his finger down and just jot a note of all the places that imagination appeared. So he has a subject index, even if the same concept appears in slightly different words or the concept isn't identified by name, his index will have it. So these are the two indexes that are invented in 1230, the word index and the subject index, Gross Test and Hugh of Saint Cher. 1230, not, one didn't occur in 1219 and the other in 1232. You can place these uh, simultaneous masterful insights at the same year that seems i don't know that seems too coincidental maybe the, maybe it was going on beforehand we just didn't know about it until 1230 maybe special ink was invented in 1230 that stayed on the parchment better than the stuff they were using in 1220 i just almost can't believe it that's a really good point nobody's pointed that out before what we know about hugh is that he took over as friar of saint-jacques in 1230 and he left in 1235 and during his time there, the uh, the Bible concordance was produced. So, so really, I'm saying at some point between the year 1230 and 1235, gross tests, probably either the year 1229 or 1230. So, yeah. All right, then. All right, Mike. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is all it, it seems like the index was an idea that was so brilliant that it didn't take much to convince readers for it to catch on. But at the same time, such a small percentage of the population was readers. Yeah, that's right. And so the index remains relatively niche. I mean, it appears in, in, in medieval manuscripts uh, a little bit, but what really gives it a kind of turbo boost is the invention of print. So a couple of hundred years later, in the town of Mans in uh, uh, Germany, the printing press arrives. And with printing, suddenly books become cheaper. We have mass 
literacy in a, in a way that the medieval period doesn't particularly see. The other thing about printing for indexes is the, the page becomes a stable thing. In a, in a medieval manuscript, um, Mike, you might have a copy of Aristotle and I've got a copy of Aristotle, but they don't, all of the words are the same, but they aren't on the same pages because your book might be a big one and my book might be a small one. And these, these copies of the book, they've literally been copied out by hand. There's no printing in the 13th century. They copy the words, but they're not really interested in keeping them exactly on the same page. Um, it's only with printing that, you know, if I run off a hundred copies of something, every page is going to look the same. So suddenly we can start to use page numbers. Suddenly you, indexes are much easier to compile because we have this new thing, the page number, the stable page number, um, where we can say, I mean, to every footnote, every, every kind of reference we use, uh, where we talk about page numbers, really that doesn't make sense before printing. This whole book is written in a way that's both an appreciation and a celebration, and you certainly see the whimsy inherent in the index. But my question is, do you think that there, mo so many of the things you write about are funny, um, is there something about the index that uh, elicits the humor in people who like books? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, whimsy is a really nice word. I, I think it's hard to think about indexes without ending up on a, on a slightly kind of uh, whimsical note. What they do is they put things that don't belong together together. They take your very sensible, well-ordered thing and they chuck out the order and they just say, well, I'm just going to put them in alphabetical order. And so you to interrupt, there is a theory of jokes. There is a theory of humor that all humor is, is a benign disruption of what's expected. A, to some extent, a smashing together of two discordant ideas. The comedian Drew Carey talks about when he writes a joke, he writes a column of uh words associated with one thing, so it could be basketball, and a column of words associated with another thing, and it could be babies. And when he sees any connection, he knows that there is a joke. Anyway, I'm just interrupting you to say what you're talking about is inherent to many theories of humor. That's exactly right. The, 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 the sort of smashing together of, of concepts that could be hundreds of pages apart in, in, in the book, you see. Um, in the index, they, they turn up together. Uh, uh, vampires, venomous snakes, uh, Vera Lynn, whatever, you know. The, 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 uh, so if you can't see the, the sort of inherent whimsicality or, or silliness in that, then, then I think you, you've, you've, it would be a very sad book about the index <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't appreciate its sort of innate humour. It's interestingly, in the Middle Ages, this was a problem. The idea that um, that you would use alphabetical order. God has produced the universe in, in its glorious order, and our job is to, to make sense of that order. The idea of, of not doing that, of using something as arbitrary, well, I'm just going to put it in order of the letters of its name, um, was a sort of theological problem. It seemed like a sort of undermining of, of, of um, the great uh, order of the cosmos, if you like. I want to talk about the popularity of your book, which you say took you by surprise. And was that because you thought that indexes were kind of a niche subject and therefore writing about indexes would not have wide appeal? Yeah, 100%. It's such a pleasure, honestly. I have to say, it's such a pleasure to be sitting here talking to you on the other side of the Atlantic. And I had no expectation of this when I set out to write a, a book about indexes. I thought this would be a very niche academic book for me and a couple of dozen other sort of uh, um, book historians. Um, and what's happened is, is that during the writing of it, 
it feels like, you know, when you walk up a mountain and then you realise there's another mountain a bit higher beyond it and stuff. At every point, I'm like, oh, my God, people, more people are, oh, not them, really, really. The, the, the sort of uh, succession of, of, of kind of gratifications of like, really, other people are interested in that. At one point, I had to make the decision to change it from being a, a book for small circulation, small circulation academic press to... Um, to publishing with Penguin in the UK and, and Norton in the States. And that required a little bit of uh, kind of rejigging the sentences. So the, the, talking, when we talk about gross tests and talk about St. Hugh, I put in a, a few paragraphs about who they are. So, so a little bit of sort of filling out personalities. So a few moments that, that are slightly anecdotal or, or a little, little bit of character. But other than that, it's largely the same book that it would have been um, as an academic book. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's it's incredibly astonishing and gratifying that, that other people want to know about it too. I think one thing that, that that occurred to me during the writing of the book, though, is that a search engine is an index. I don't mean metaphorically. I mean, and really, it is. Google describe their processes: crawling, where they go off and search the internet, and indexing. And when you type something into Google, Google doesn't search the internet; it searches its index of the internet. And I think that was a really big kind of uh, realization for me early on in writing the book. Okay, so it's not just a history of the index, it's a history of the age of search. I mean, we search more now than I think at any point in history. I'm slightly addicted to it. We have our phones, we watch the telly, we go, you know, what was she in again? Or who did he play for? Or I, I thought they were dead? Or where's the rest? All of these things that the way we're, our fingers are sort of twitching to, to search. And how did we get here? And that the story is that well, it, about 800 years ago, there was this sort of need for it. I think that was one of the realizations where, where I thought, oh, you know what, this book could have a, a sort of broader appeal because we might all wonder, how did we get here, this addiction to, to information, to searchability? It is applicable to how we live now. I have a couple theories as to the popularity of the book, and I'm going to ask you to comment on these specific theories. One is that I do think that everything, everything that's popular nowadays addresses an anxiety. I think we live in an age of information and anxiety. And so if you can address, successfully address an anxiety, you'll have a successful product. And so there are two different anxieties I think it might be addressing. One is that we are in an era of asking what is real and what is fake. So much information is swirling around out there. We, we look at the war in Ukraine and we know that there are some set of facts that are true, yet all of China and all of Russia are getting a totally different set of facts. So the whole oppression of fake news and information overload, the truthiness of it all, makes us long for the idea that we can somehow organize the chaos. And that's what maybe an index represents. That is the anxiety. In an age of chaos, the index is organization. So there's something about this book that appeals in the same way that Marie Kondo's uh, lectures and lessons appeal. It, it addresses that anxiety. So that's theory one. And what do you think about that theory? That's really, it, it's not what I expected you to say. Uh, maybe maybe theory two is the anxiety that, that, that I have in mind. Um, yeah. I like that. Yeah, that that is right. That um, I suppose I think of of the index as the answer to to the big data problem. Um, alphabetical order was the answer to the big data problem in the Library of Alexandria, three hundred three hundred BC. Um, so this, yeah, 
anxiety about overwhelm, information overload, um, is as old as uh, old as the hills, and, and the index is one of the um, solutions to that. Mary Kondo is a, a nice example of wouldn't it be nice to to, to bring order uh, to chaos? Yeah, I like that. And uh, relatedly, my other theory is just having dominion over the vastness. It gives us control. It is, I don't know if it's the illusion of control, but in books, which is something that at least readers of books retreat to and um, use as a salve or a bomb, the index represents just that, that we have at our fingertips some way to... Some way to say that, you know, there is all this out there that I can't possibly get a hold of, but via the index, it offers me a chance to do a little bit more of that. Well, I'm, I'm going to say slightly the opposite, which is the index has actually produced its own anxiety. For, for five, six hundred years, people, you, along, alongside the history of the index, the, the story that I tell of the development of the index has a counter-narrative running alongside it, which is an anxiety that because of indexes, people don't read properly anymore. There's this uh, age-old anxiety um, that I think we feel quite strongly in the digital era. Uh, Nicholas Carr has a wonderful book that I slightly take issue with in my book, but I still think it's, it, it's a very important argument. Is Google making us stupid? Certainly I feel this. Am I addicted to my phone? There's another one. Um, so we have all these anxieties about proper reading? Do people read better before the internet? Um, what I say in the book is people have been saying that for 600 years. At the start of the 18th century, the index is totally under attack for promoting alphabetical learning, secondhand scholarship. People who use indexes don't read the book properly. Going back 100 years, Galileo grumbles about people who don't do experiments, they just use indexes to other people's books. Going back 100 years before that, in 1533, Erasmus, the great European scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam, writes a book in the form of an index, and he says in the preface, I had to do it this way because these days that's the only bit of a book that people read. So a nice bit of snark there. So, so actually, rather than being the... Um, solution to an anxiety about reading, I, I feel that the index has, has historically been the source of an anxiety about reading. If you have a very useful summary of a book in the form of a table, is that going to be enough for some people? Will they actually not bother reading the book? I would say to this that actually, um, of course people read some books. Some, there's some books as, as, a, as a scholar that I just dip into via the index. And I haven't got time and I, don't, I know that I won't need everything in it, but I still read many books from start to finish. And I'm sure that you do, that linear reading, that the type of reading that we bring to novels, for example, hasn't died out over the last 600 years simply because of the book index. The name of the book is Index, a history of the, a bookish adventure from medieval manuscripts to the digital age. Author Dennis Duncan, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And now the spiel. March Madness is here. It's March, and I am mad. Mad at the never-ending story of how much March Madness costs us in productivity. When I was a full-time sports reporter, some editor would always say, hey, Mike, you want to do a story on worker productivity loss during March Madness? And I would say, okay, let me look at the underlying data. And I would, and I'd report back, actually, this is total bullshit. Do you still want me to do the story? And I was told, because NPR is a pretty good news organization, no, actually, we don't. I think I talked on NPR about how silly the estimates were, and that was kind of a story. So back then, back when I was doing this, and there were press releases about how much March Madness was costing American business and American industry, the purveyor of these stats was a firm known as Challenger Gray and Christmas. Here is a 2014, my last year as a sports reporter, 2014 entry from their blog. With an estimated 50 million Americans participating in March Madness office pools, companies stand to lose at least $1.2 billion for every unproductive work hour during the first week of the tournament according to calculations by Challenger Gray and Christmas. By 2016, they were upping things a little bit. According to Challenger Gray and Christmas, and I talked to Andrew Challenger on the phone yesterday about this, and I asked him, bottom line for me, what are we missing out on worker productivity? He said it, it gets down to about $1.3 billion. So the number inched up, which seemed rational if you didn't think too hard about how the number was arrived at in the first place. One, an estimate of how many people filled out the bracket at any time. But estimates varied year by year by 10 or 20 million. So they would usually take the highest one. Then this firm figured out the audience for streaming the games and they figured everyone who was streaming the games was at work and they multiplied those numbers by the median hourly wage. And now even if this number was in the ballpark and there's no way to know if it was, being distracted by watching a game in the background or filling out a bracket doesn't mean those hours just evaporate. They're not hours paid that aren't worked. Most workers have tasks assigned to them, projects, and if 10 minutes are spent filling out a bracket or 20 minutes are spent on Christine's cupcake party or 15 minutes are spent on filling out an order form for Maribel's daughter's Girl Scout cookies, it's not like the work doesn't eventually get done. But still, the estimate obtained and was always reported, and Challenger Gray and Christmas were credited. And then there was a paradigm shift. Others began to get into the game of estimating productivity lost during the NCAA tournament. Challenger Gray and Christmas's dominance over the field of making up this number was being challenged. The new competitors noticed there was no way to and no desire to fact check the claims. The bigger it was, the more the media loved it. So, as WXYZ's Matt Smith reported in 2018, the productivity number, as reported by a rival firm, went way up. And 7X News reporter Matthew Smith is live with what bosses really want to know. Matt, just how much time will workers really spend watching these games? Yeah, we hear this every year, but this is wild. They did a little bit of research to try to pin this down. It's actually 25 minutes a game or a day 
of each and every individual games that are going on. So 25 minutes a day, $6.3 billion lost in productivity. That's across the entire country. That is WXYZ's Matt Smith reporting live there from a dark parking lot for no discernible reason. Challenger Gray and Christmas responded. Previous estimates were of 1.5 or 1.6 million, as you heard. The numbers went up. This was Andy Challenger, the eponymous challenger of Challenger Gray and Christmas, quoted on Marketplace in 2017. It ends up costing employers about $2.1 billion paid to employees that are otherwise distracted and not doing their work. And then the next year, 2018, the Challenger Gray and Christmas blog had this headline, It's Madness, March Madness to Cost Employers $13.3 billion in lost productivity. That is quite a leap. It is true, ratings were up 11% from 2018, but that estimate was up by more than 600%. Why? I would say because it's a totally fabricated estimate where the only concern is putting forward a big enough number to get news coverage. And once competitors come over the top with a bigger fake estimate, you have to respond in kind. So today, KTLA reported on, you guessed it, the cost of lost productivity. And listen to who they cite. Hours and hours on billions on billions of dollars lost in productivity. What? The average worker <laughs> spends six hours watching the tournament every year, adding up to nearly $14 billion in wasted working hours. That is according to a new study by WalletHub. WalletHub. Not Challenger Grand Christmas anymore. A quick check of the math. The average worker spends six hours watching? Well, there are 160 million workers in America, so they just told us that a billion hours of NCAA tournament is being watched before you even count the 100 million Americans who are over the age of 16 and who aren't working, like all the college students, and all the retirees, and everyone who's home and has access to a TV. They probably watch the tournament more than the workers. WalletHub is giving us viewership numbers way out of whack with the viewership numbers claimed by CBS and all their affiliates, at least double what the actual viewership figure is. Plus, and this is lost every year, no one mentions this, only today's games and tomorrow's games start before 7 p.m. Eastern time on a weekday. Of the 10 days where any games are played, five are played on the weekends, and the majority are played at night. So complaining about lost March Madness productivity is like talking about lost productivity for Thursday night football. The average Thursday night football game averaged 14 million viewers. The finals of March Madness averaged 16.9 million viewers last year. Quite comparable. I've yet to see the Thursday night football is costing America story, though Challenger Grand Christmas certainly has an opportunity. Well, they say March Madness is all about upsets, and I am pretty upset, maybe you could tell. And by the way, I did all this work, I assembled all my findings, I tracked it, I reported it today, as I watched Michigan come back to be Colorado State and a plucky South Dakota State team succumb to the Providence Friars. Did it hurt my productivity? No! Just, just judge me by the output. It's also St. Patrick's Day. What about the productivity there? I mean, I'm drunk already. The costs of my drunkenness could be, according to a study conducted by Leprechaun Green and Irish in conjunction with eastout.com, $39.2 trillion. And that's it for today's show. 
Corey Wara is The Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is listed in our index under Chief Operating Officer, pages 34 to 38, Chief Financial Officer, pages 39 to 47, and Director of TSOC Outreach, pages 265 to 270. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out advertisecast.com slash thegist, umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.